Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with the schedule of English language broadcast, or it's easier to use a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from NHK World Radio Japan, Going Underground, Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, and Radio Havana, Cuba. We will begin with NHK World Radio Japan. Japan and NATO, that's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, have agreed to raise cooperation to, quote, maintain a free and open international order, unquote. In Pakistan, a suicide bomber killed over 100 people in a mosque, mainly occupied by police, who were the intended victims. A military facility in Iran was attacked by three drones which U.S. officials attributed to Israel. NHK Japan. Japan and NATO have agreed to take their relationship to another level. The alliance's chief, Jens Stoltenberg, met with Prime Minister Kishida Fumio for talks in Tokyo. They say Russia's invasion of Ukraine and China's growing competitiveness have made a more dangerous world. With the situations in Ukraine and the Indo-Pacific in mind, we've agreed we'll raise cooperation between Japan and NATO to a higher level. The goal is to maintain a free and open international order based on the rule of law which includes the realization of a free and open Indo-Pacific. Kishida said Japan may establish an independent delegation with NATO after speaking with Stoltenberg. He also said his country intends to participate in the alliance's meetings on a regular basis. Stoltenberg said their close cooperation could soon be crucial for maintaining peace in the Indo-Pacific. Stoltenberg also said he's concerned over the growing military challenges posed by North Korea. Japan and NATO also pledged to cooperate on combating cyberspace threats and disinformation. Turning to Pakistan, where the death toll from the bombing of a crowded mosque continues to rise. Local officials say the explosion left nearly 100 people dead and injured over 200 others. Many of the victims were police officers. It happened in the northwestern city of Peshawar on Monday. The mosque is in a heavily fortified area with several checkpoints. Police suspect a suicide bomber was behind the attack, which appears to have been targeting officers. No one has officially claimed responsibility for the bombing. But it comes after the Pakistani Taliban stepped up attacks on police and military facilities. There are growing calls for authorities to take the violence more seriously. Officials are now investigating how the suspect was able to access the mosque where police were praying. Iran. 
The country reports one of its military facilities was struck by a drone attack over the weekend, a hit it's calling unsuccessful. The defense ministry says three small drones targeted the facility on Saturday. Iran's state-run news agency says the drones were shot down by jamming radio waves or destroyed by the facility's air defense system. It says the attack caused minor damage to the facility's roof and there were no casualties. Iran's foreign minister called it a cowardly attack that was carried out to destabilize the country. Hussein Amir Abdullahian did not say who was responsible. But Reuters and the Wall Street Journal, citing unnamed U.S. officials, are reporting that Israel appears to be behind it. The Israeli military tells NHK that it will not be commenting. Iran's nuclear facilities have suffered a series of explosions and fires in recent years. And an Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps senior official plus a scientist believed to have been key in the country's nuclear development were assassinated. Tehran has accused Israel of carrying out these attacks and assassination. Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are heard from 8.30 to 9 p.m. at 9865 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp and they podcast at most sites. All the times I announce are for Pacific Standard Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. Next, Afshin Ratansi's Going Underground Returns. Afshin spoke with Noam Chomsky, famed American linguist and scholar. In this excerpt, Noam discusses current examples of manufacturing consent in regard to the wars in Iraq and Ukraine. He goes on to use the undersea bombing of the Nord Stream pipeline, delivering gas from Russia to Germany, pointing out that the mainstream media accused Russia of the explosion and then not investigating the evidence. He goes on to explain why Europe is now in the pocket of the U.S., much to their own detriment, going underground. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with Professor Noam Chomsky, American dissident and co-author of the pioneering book, Manufacturing Consent, The Political Economy of the Mass Media. Uh, Harvard University had a, uh, a debate in which the debate was whether the Iraq war can be considered a humanitarian intervention, a debate. Suppose that Moscow University had a debate on whether the Russian invasion can be called a humanitarian intervention. Can you imagine the reaction in the West? What's the reaction in the West to what happened at Harvard? Applause. Look at the openness of American society. They're even willing to question whether this military intervention was a humanitarian intervention. Uh, well, that's manufacture of consent. Maybe they call you a Putin apologist because you express doubt about a terror attack that was one of the worst, as if climate-destroying uh, terror attacks, given the amount of uh, fossil fuels released, let alone uh, the, what the sabotage means for energy resources for Germany. Uh, you think that the mainstream media that said this must be the Russians could have got it wrong? Let me give you an explicit example. Uh, recently, there were a couple of articles in the mainstream press saying there's now 
some skepticism arising about whether Russia was really responsible for the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines. I mean, the least likely state responsible for the sabotage is Russia. It's the pipeline that was sabotaged and destroyed is largely owned by Gazprom, Russian company. What possible purpose would Russia have had in destroying its and sabotaging its own major capital investment, which it counts on for supplying Europe? If Russia wanted the supply to stop the supply of gas, all it could do is turn off a valve. Didn't have to destroy its main its main uh, investments. So the least likely uh, state uh, that can be uh, charged is Russia. So of course the Western media immediately rushed on race to say, "Well, Russia's responsible." Now they're raising some skepticism. That's called manufacture of consent set the framework and debate within it, but it's the framework that is insane. Who's the likely culprit in the Nord Stream sabotage? Who had the motive and the capability? Well, just one state. The United States obviously had the motive, in fact, was quite frank and open about saying that those not only opposing the pipelines, but saying that they'll be destroyed. The motive was not secret, was perfectly public, obviously had the capability. In fact, they had just had large naval maneuvers in the region right before the sabotage with major ships and equipment. So they had the capability and the motive clearly. Nobody else had anything like that. The Russians are the least likely culprit. So manufacturing consent says, let's have a lively debate to show how open and free we are, but within the framework that excludes by assumption, by the possibility that the United States might have been involved, we'll only discuss debate whether the least likely culprit is involved. Well, that's effective propaganda. You don't just lie that's refutable. What you do is set up a framework of discussion which excludes, totally excludes, the obvious and most likely answer, then debate other things. So in the case of Iraq, you have a debate at Harvard over whether uh, the Iraq invasion was a, a humanitarian invasion. You don't have a debate over whether it was the, a crime, the kind of crime for which Nazi war criminals were hanged at Nuremberg. You don't want to open that question for discussion. So you discuss something ridiculous. Was it a humanitarian intervention when you carry out a shock and awe attack against Iraq, uh, smash up the country, kill hundreds of thousands of people, have all kinds of torture and other atrocities? In fact, just to add, one of the worst crimes in the Iraq war was the Battle of Fallujah, especially the Second Battle of Fallujah, devastating, destructive, murderous attack by the Marines, began with taking over the general hospital. It's a war crime in itself, then destroying much of the city, killing nobody knows how many people because we don't investigate our own crimes. How is that remembered in the United States?
Well, I'll tell you, the U.S. Navy is now commissioning a new vessel in honor of the Marines who fought in Fallujah. It's called the Fallujah. That's the way we deal with one of the worst crimes. Doesn't get reported, of course. I should say the Biden administration officially denies involvement in the terror attack on the Nord Stream, as does the British administration uh, after allegations the Royal Navy uh, was involved uh, in it. I think there are major shifts in world order and the invasion of Ukraine and the reaction to it have accelerated these. One effect of the invasion of Ukraine was to give the United States an extraordinary gift. Putin gave the United States a gift that it greatly relishes. It drove Europe into the pocket of the United States. There's been a debate all through the Cold War back to the 1940s as to whether Europe should move in an independent direction, be what was sometimes called a third force in international affairs, was pressed most vigorously by Charles de Gaulle, Willy Brandt's Ostpolitik, gestures by Olaf Palm and others. The United States instead demanded what's called the Atlanticist version based on NATO, which the United States runs, of course, in which Europe would be subordinate to the United States. This became a major issue with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mikhail Gorbachev proposed a common European home from Lisbon to Vladivostok, no military alliances, no victors, no defeated, common efforts to move forward towards a more or less social democratic uh, Eurasia. The United States was strongly opposed, insisted on the Atlanticist vision. Vladimir Putin has in fact offered the United States its highest wish provided Europe, at least temporarily, has abandoned search for independence and is adjoining, uh, subordinating itself to the United States. Professor Noam Chomsky, thank you. That excerpted interviews from Afshin Ratansi's show called Going Underground, which is available at rumble.com. Going Underground was on RT for many years until it was blocked by UK and US governments. Afshin Ratansi is a highly respected journalist who formerly worked for the BBC, Al Jazeera, and other leading international news sources. I recommend listening to the entire 30-minute interview on Rumble.com, along with Afshin's other shows on this free website. On to Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. German Chancellor Scholz traveled to meet with Brazilian President Lula da Silva. Scholz asked Lula to provide ammunition for the tanks Germany is sending to Ukraine, and Lula refused, saying that he would be willing to negotiate peace in that region along with Chinese President Xi. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle.
a warm embrace and a cold shower. The German chancellor's trip to Brazil was more of a roller coaster ride than expected. Olaf Scholz traveled to the South American country to welcome it and its new president back on the world stage after his predecessor had alienated many of Brazil's Western partners. But it won't all be smooth sailing with Lula da Silva either, and he made that very clear. Asked to provide military support to help Ukraine defend itself against Russia's invasion, Lula said, he doesn't want any involvement in the war. Instead, Lula said Brazil and China could play a role in peace negotiations. Scholz was hoping to rally Lula's support in providing ammunition for German-made tanks in Ukraine. The Brazilian president refused to side with the West and reiterated that, in his view, Russia and Ukraine were equally to blame for the war. It can't be possible in the 21st century that we're seeing a war and we don't even know why it exists. Some say it's because of NATO, some say it's because of entry to the European Union, some say it's about the territory that Russia occupies. There needs to be someone at the negotiating table and I think that our Chinese friends have an important role to play. If I go to China in March as planned, that is an issue I want to discuss with President Xi Jinping. It's time for China to get involved and to try and help find peace between Russia and Ukraine. Let's bring in Valentina Sauter. She's the Associate Director in Brazil, lead at the Adrian Arch Latin America Center at the Atlantic Council. Ms. Sauter, uh, welcome to the day. So I think that what Lula is proposing is this peaceful negotiation to the war, which is something that is uh, aligned with Brazilian diplomacy in general. To me, honestly, it wasn't surprising that Lula didn't agree with a direct contribution to uh, the war in this sense. I think that it's very much aligned with what we would have expected from Lula in the past, uh, in his past two terms, as well as with Brazilian diplomacy in general, to have this pro-peaceful negotiations through diplomatic means as a, a resolution to this war on Ukraine. So I think that this is what we are seeing also in terms of how Brazil and Russia has had have had long-standing diplomatic relationships. Um, so, so Brazil has had so with Ukraine as well. But in a way, there are also multilateral fronts in which both countries, Brazil and Russia, uh, agree on and also collaborate on in terms of the BRICS and the G20, as well as the UN, which is also a way there in which Brazil is bringing back um, its position in the world stage. Yeah. Let's look at China because, you know, we've seen this shifting the blame away from Russia, a common practice, not only among the BRICS countries, but, but also among the BRICS countries. You know, Russia is one of them and they are close allies, the entire group. Yesterday, China, who's yet to condemn the war, went a step further and directly pointed the finger at the U.S. Let's listen in and then get back to you. As the ones who started the Ukraine crisis and the biggest hand fueling the conflict, the U.S. continues to send heavy weapons, prolonging and intensifying the conflict. If the U.S. truly hopes for an early end to the crisis and really cares about the safety of Ukrainian people's lives, it should cease sending weapons for war profiteering. It should work responsibly to de-escalate the situation and create a favorable environment for peace talks. So the U.S. there being accused of fanning the flames of war, is that a sentiment shared by Brazil? 
think necessarily that uh, deep is a sentiment that is shared, but honestly, it seems to me that there is an alignment in terms of the language that is being used, in terms of really pushing for these peaceful negotiations. And not only calling on Russia not to have a, a part to blame, because it does, and I think that Lula was clear in saying that Russia made a mistake in invading Ukraine, um, but also to make sure that there is a pressure added there for both Putin and Zelensky to be ready to sit at the negotiating table and actually talk about what peace might look like for both countries. And I think in a way, a push by these uh, non-aligned countries to actually uh, push the West as well as the United States in helping achieve that end result. Honestly, there is an alignment with the United States in general, normally more to the West than to Russia. Uh, In terms of commerce, for example, in terms of trade, Brazil is way more aligned with the United States than with Russia. But both represent uh, an important partner, important strategic partners for Brazil in terms of uh, geopolitics in general and world politics. So I think that there is more to be looked at in, into this uh, in this stance than just a U.S. versus Russia situation or China versus a U.S. situation. The expectation for the Lula administration nowadays is very high. Everyone is expecting Lula to, again, bring Brazil back into the international community and really push for uh, these kinds of uh, peaceful negotiations. Brazil and Lula particularly has a history in terms of negotiating with Iran as well. So this is um, maybe a way in for giving a chance to the Lula administration and for Lula himself to try to make this uh, a possibility, like bring this uh, narrative and this rhetoric to China as he visits China in March and then also to the United States as he comes to uh, meet with Biden now in February. Valentina Sader of the Atlantic Council. Thanks a lot for those insights. That report was from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, DW.com, as well as most podcast sites. It's also up on YouTube at DW News and DW Documentary. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Please help me continue producing this weekly show, which I freely distribute to radio stations and the Internet like a listener in Whitethorn, California, did this week. Many, many thanks. We will conclude with Radio Havana, Cuba, an update on the continuing massive protest in Peru, including polls which show overwhelming popular support for fresh elections this year. Israeli forces continue killing Palestinians in the West Bank, and plans were announced to supply firearms to Israeli citizens. Radio Havana, Cuba. Over the weekend, police in Peru repressed protesters who demanded the resignation of Dina Boluarte, president-designate, and who tried to reach the Congress headquarters. On Saturday, thousands of people mobilized peacefully in the city of San Juan de Lurigancho and at various points on the outskirts of Lima, marching to the center of the city. There they collided with police units and were attacked. 
Videos disseminated through social networks show uniformed officers and vehicles on Albankai Avenue shooting at demonstrators who were demanding the closure of Congress, early elections, and the call for a constituent assembly and the release of former President Pedro Castillo. During the day, the demonstrators also condemned the decision of the Peruvian Congress the day before when, after a prolonged debate, it rejected a project to bring forward the elections to October of this year. Poll has revealed in Lima that as police repression of protesters increases in Peru, the majority of the population disapproves of the management of President-designate Dina Boluarte, and they agree on bringing forward the elections to this year, 2023. In the recent survey, 75% of Peruvians are in favor of the president resigning from office and 74% agree with the closure of the current Congress. 89% of the population rejects the current parliamentary administration, a figure that has also increased by one percentage point in a matter of days. With another death over the weekend, there has now more than 60 dead, among them a policeman, in the context of the demonstrations that began in the second week of December, had a truce at the end of the year, and resumed on January the 4th in Puno on the southern border with Bolivia. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces have killed at least 10 Palestinians during a raid on the Janin refugee camp. One of the victims was a 60-year-old woman. She was identified by a local hospital as Magda Obaid. At least 20 other people were injured in the attack. Medics say Israeli forces at first blocked them from getting to the injured. The head of the Jenin Public Hospital reported Israeli soldiers also fired tear gas into the hospital and that it reached the pediatric department causing injuries to children. General strikes have been called in Jenin, Nablus and Ramallah. Schools closed early and stores shut down. Palestinian leaders called at the United Nations and international actors to step in to prevent further bloodshed. Israelis have killed at least 29 Palestinians since the start of the year, including five children. Israel has announced plans to make it easier for Israelis to get firearms amid escalating violence in the occupied Palestinian territory. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced the measure after convening a meeting of his security cabinet filled with hardline reactionary politicians over a pair of shootings that included an attack in occupied East Jerusalem. Quote, we deploy forces, we increase forces, and we do it in different arenas, Netanyahu told reporters. He promised to expedite gun permits for Israeli citizens and step up efforts to collect illegal weapons. The homes of the suspected assailants would also be sealed immediately ahead of demolition, he said, in order to exact an additional price from those who support terrorism. His office later said social security benefits for the families of the attackers will also be cancelled. In addition, it promised new steps to strengthen illegal Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank, but gave no details. According to local media, Netanyahu's plans to approve more gun permits for Israeli citizens came as Israeli police were also encouraging those with existing licenses to carry their guns. Quite, when 
While Netanyahu is urging Israelis not to take the law into their own hands, he's also putting more weapons into those very same hands, Palestinian officials said, from occupied East Jerusalem. The measures against the Palestinian families is being described as, quote, collective punishment. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu, though the podcasts have not been updated. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15.140 and from 5 p.m. to 11 at either 6060 or 6165. At their website, you can stream the English version on noon from Monday through Friday, Pacific Standard Time. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You have to look harder these days because of U.S. and E.U. prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows, Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with a podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 26th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.